Go ahead and locate 3 John. You're probably there by now. It's a small book towards the end of the New Testament. It's a one-chapter book. It is one of four one-chapter books. Thus, our series this month has been called what? One. Just really deep titles going on here, I'm telling you, right? Uh, Yeah, we've been looking this month at the one-chapter books of the New Testament. They are Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. We'll cover 3 John today, uh, Jude next week, and then we'll move into our Christmas series, and then James in, in 2016. Uh, before we look into 3 John, though, I think an overview would be helpful. An overview not just of the series, which I just kind of gave you the, the four books that we're looking at in the series, but I think an overview of the John themes. Now, we didn't look at 1 John in this series, but uh, because half of the one-chapter books are written by John, I think it's important to see kind of a, a, a trajectory happening in John's writings, because they'll, they'll help us kind of get today's message. So in 1 John, the, the main theme is this, that love and obedience are signs of true believers. I won't review all five chapters for you here, just trust me on this one. The, the love and obedience, that, that's the sign that you belong to God. He talks about that. When he comes to 2 John, he says, now how do we see love and obedience in our life? And he says, basically, the hospitality is one of the ways that we see love and obedience played out. You saw that last week as Tamor talked about loving each other deeply and, and staying connected. How, do, how does hospitality show itself? Well, that's what 3 John shows us. We're going to see today that hospitality, in a very technical sense, is really opening up your life and home to strangers. Now, when I say strangers, you're thinking, oh my, what does that mean? I'll explain later. But in short, it means to open up your life and home to those who are traveling through their itinerant traveling kind of missionaries, preachers, and they're on mission for the sake of the gospel. And they're, they're traveling through, they've come into your life and your church How do you treat them? Being hospitable to them that you don't know and yet you're spiritually connected to? That's one of the ways we show hospitality. That's 3 John. Hospitality is one of the ways we show love and obedience. That's 2 John. And love and obedience are two signs we belong to God. That's 1 John. Does that make sense? So if you kind of track John's themes, I think today's letter will will just kind of open up even more so and you'll kind of get it. Here's one other observation for you as well. If 2 John deals with outside deceivers, and it did, by the way. Remember the warning against false teachers last week and loving each other deeply and making sure we're holding on to the right truth about Jesus. He's come in the flesh. And don't let folks wander from them. Love them enough to hold them to the truth. If 2 John deals with outside deceivers as a threat to the church, 3 John deals with inside dividers as a threat to the church. Those who are already inside, but their agenda is based on what they want, not what God wants. So, just some overview comments there as we think about these one-chapter books, especially today, 3 John. So, with your Bibles open to it, I want you to hear the entire book read at one time, all right? We've been doing this for each of the books. We do Philemon and 2 John. And now, Emily's going to come today. She's going to read for us all of 3 John. And then we'll walk back through it and kind of understand it, make some application. I will take some questions today, so if you have some as we're reading through it and as we explain it, be sure to text them into the number. But let's hear, first of all, all of 3 John. Here's God's word for us. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. 
Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I have had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with ink and pen. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. This is the word of the Lord. So there's 15 verses to make up the third one-chapter book of the New Testament. What is the real hub of these 15 verses? What, what does it kind of rotate around? I think if you have a pen, you ought to, or a highlighter for your digital device, however, whatever kind of Bible you use, whether you're scrolling or turning, verse 8 is really the central, um, I would say the hinge that the, the door of 3 John swings on, okay? Verse 8, here's what it says. Let's read it again. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. We're going to explain that for a little bit. And then we're going to see that really this simple uh, exhortation is is kind of surrounded by two examples. And that's the best way to see 3 John. It's really an exhortation in verse 8 surrounded by two examples, that of Gaius in verses 2 through 7. And then that of Diotrephes in 9 and 10. One is a positive example of how verse 8 is lived out. And one is a negative example of how verse 8 is not lived out. So let's examine verse 8, the exhortation from John. And then let's look at the examples. Then we'll take some questions. And we'll make one last application before we leave. So here's the exhortation that we ought to support, that's the present active verb in this verse, and actually it's the main verb of the book. There is another verb in the book, it comes in verse 11, but I do think it's a a secondary repeated idea of verse 8, by the way. Because in verse 11 he talks about not imitating evil, but imitating good. We'll see what that is in a minute. He's just saying there, don't act like Diotrephes, act like Gaius. And what was Gaius doing? Gaius was obeying verse 8. So here's the primary verb of the book. Here's the primary ongoing action that should be continued. It says we should support people like these. The word support means to receive. Some translations will say receive. It doesn't mean just receive like, okay, come in and and find a seat and leave me alone. It, It encompasses a whole lifestyle of bringing someone and helping, sending them on their way. In other words, you're going to share your life with them so that while they're stopping with you, then they go to their next leg or phase, they're doing that in a way that's prosperous and, and beneficial and God-honoring. So you're, you're, you're receiving and supporting them. You're helping them. But the question is, who is them? Who are, who are the people like thee? That's a good question. Well, it goes back to verse 5, in which the, the writer John says that Gaius was faithful in his efforts for these brothers, see that word there in verse 5? And then he kind of names them as strangers. How can a brother be a stranger? It's a good question. hope you're asking that. How does that work? If you're a brother, I should know you, but he says that this brother's a stranger. In the Bible, understand this, stranger is primarily and predominantly a believer that you don't know. Does that make sense? Now I want to warn you of something. I want to push pause and say this to you. And this will breed a lot of conversation in your lighthouse, and I think that's good. I would be careful using the biblical concept word of stranger in trying to formulate a theology about how to accept refugees. All right? And there's a lot of conversation there. But we're thinking about Syria lately, other situations. I'm not at all saying we shouldn't be compassionate. I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. But in the Bible predominantly, when the word stranger is used, it's speaking of believers that come into your life in church that you haven't met yet. So they're stranger to you, but guess what? Because they're a believer, they're actually in your spiritual family. So what are they? They're a brother or sister, but you don't know them, so they're a stranger. Thus, John says here, hey, Gaius, you have been so great in loving the brothers who are really strangers. One's a physical understanding One is a spiritual understanding. And he says here, you've been faithful in supporting and loving these people, brothers, strangers, who have gone out for the sake of the name. That's a further description of them. You'll see that in verses 6, verse 7. Apparently they're traveling, itinerant type of preachers slash missionaries. They're coming through the city. 
They in, uh, encountered this church, these people. And so Gaius was an example of someone who really treated them well. And from his example, John says to the church at large, and thus to us, we too should support or receive or treat well people like these. Who is that? Those who are church encounters who are traveling through these missionaries slash preachers, these itinerant people who are going out for the sake of the name. That's who he's talking about. And so when we encounter those people, when, we, when they cross our path, our church, our life, we should support them. And why? Because in that way we're fellow workers for the truth. The word fellow workers is the word from where we gather synergy. And I think you understand what synergy is. It's when the sum is greater than necessarily all the parts looked at. Like, okay, this is good, this is good, this is good. But if you put them all together, you get something that you couldn't do just individually. John here is saying, when you support people who, who come into your life for church, and they're kind of traveling through, they're a stranger, but yet they're related to you spiritually, when you support them and help them, you actually become a partner with them in a way that you could never do on your own. It's amazing truth. That's humbling. What we see here is the power of partnership. And so this is what John is calling the church to do. The church in this historical time period as well as ours. To support, to receive, to treat well, to help people like the ones who in that culture were traveling through as missionaries slash preachers for the sake of the name. They were on a mission for the gospel and they needed help. They weren't getting any help from the Gentiles. They wouldn't even take it. The word Gentiles there means pagans, unbelievers. They felt like their mission was one that was provided for by the church, authorized by God, and so this should be funded by the church. And so they're saying, hey, let's do our part to be fellow workers in this. That's the exhortation. It's very clear, very precise, but right here in Third John, the command is clear. Now, how is Gaius an example of that? Well, let's look back at some verses about his life. It begins in verse 2 by just simply, uh, John simply says, I hear that you're walking in truth. I'm praying for your good health. I'm praying for soul health. I'm, I'm glad that you're walking and obeying the truth, and it brings me great joy. All John there is saying is, Gaius, when I see that you are living out among these brothers slash strangers, you're living out hospitality among them, And in the middle of your church, it brings me great joy because you're seeing that they hold to truth. Remember the truth in 2 John? That Christ has come in the flesh. So they were holding to solid orthodox truth. Gaius sees that. He identifies, supports them, and he sends them on well. And he does this in the middle of his church. This is an example. And John's just saying, man, when when I hear about that, Gaius, man, that brings me great joy. It delights my soul that you're willing to love those who support the truth, hold to it, and are on mission for the truth. He describes now, beginning in verse 5, more about how he did that. He says that apparently Gaius uh, had a visible love for these itinerant traveling missionaries slash preachers. Look what he says here. That it's a faithful thing you do, verse 5, and all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, because they testified to your love before the church. That's interesting, isn't it? At some point, John heard about Gaius' action because the people that he treated so warmly and those whom he welcomed so well, they must have reported to some church somewhere, man, if you ever cross Gaius' path, if you're ever in that church, man, you're, that's a great place to land. I don't know what church they testified in. Maybe it was this church. Maybe it was their sending church. We don't know. But at some point, a report was given to a church that said, Gaius, man, he knows how to welcome us well. John heard about it, and he said, Gaius, your efforts for these brothers, man, it, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's faithful. Thank you. In fact, he says that because that's your lifestyle, because you have a visible love, he says you'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now, when you read that, you may think, well, is he saying, so when they leave, Gaius, you better keep it up. You better do well when they leave, just like you did when they came. I don't think that's the real ambiance of the text here. The sense of the verbs and the nouns are this. Gaius, because you have welcomed them so well, we're confident that it will continue to be a pleasing thing, a, a well thing you're doing 
as they leave you. He's completely confident that Gaius will continue this kind of lifestyle of just sending them off well. He received them well. It'll be a good thing when he sends them off well. Why does he do that? Because they've gone out for the sake of the name, which means that his visible love was driven by a vertical focus. I, mean, I think this is very interesting here. Gaius's attitude was more vertical, his actions more horizontal. Do you catch that? He saw people who came across his life in church who were, for the sake of Christ's name, willing to go to places that they did not normally live. Remember, in this culture, things weren't easy when it comes to mobility. Can we just be really honest here? We can be. This isn't like 2015 and you buy a ticket, you board a, you know, a ship, get a plane, buy a car. Mobility was difficult. Furthermore, this time period included a lot of persecution. As you know, the first 300 years of the church's life, there was intense persecution. This is in the beginning waves of those. And so I suspect that behind the phrase, they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, there's a lot of history there. It could include this. Maybe their houses were plundered. Hebrews speaks of people who had that happen to them. Maybe their, their, uh, their uh, financial income was demolished. Maybe their jobs were dismantled. Maybe they were uh, sidelined. They were uh, just mistreated. Maybe their families were broken up. And so in some sense, they were going out for the name. But maybe they were left homeless. Maybe their things were taken. And they had no choice but to go to the next city and try to find some harbor, some cover, some safety. Maybe there's a believer in that town that will, that will know I'm a believer too and I can find a place to stay. There's probably a lot of history in that simple phrase. I would encourage you, while this does speak to us and help us with how we send missionaries to a degree... It's probably, a, it's not a complete apples to apples thing here. We're talking about people who perhaps out of necessity were forced to be very mobile and go to another city and figure out where in the world can I find someone who believes like I believe. They run into Gaius, a community of believers, and Gaius welcomes them. They're, they're, they're risking a lot. They're going out for the sake of the name, yes, it may have been intentional as well. They may have been missionary trips, missionary partners. All those things are very valuable. Just realize, this isn't a culture like the one you live in. This was a dangerous, persecuted uh, culture in which even if you went intentionally and you said, hey, I'm going to leave where I am. I'm going to other cities where there is no gospel witness, which is what Paul did. That was dangerous. We're talking about a dangerous situation and when these folks crossed into Gaius' life and into Gaius' church, he realized, wow, I want to treat them in a way that would reflect the way God would treat them. His focus is vertical, so his actions are visibly loving. And what is one of the themes of everything John writes? John's consistent nugget in all of his writings is this, love should be predominant. In fact, he's known as the disciple of love. So this is not surprising that he praises and lifts up Gaius in, a, in the right way as one who has done verse 8 well. Visible love because of a vertical focus. Can I give a word that would describe Gaius? Selfless. Not a real deep thought there. Not a hard word. I didn't make that one up. You're aware of it. But just kind of tuck that away. Gaius was selfless. When, when folks came into his life who were traveling through for the sake of the gospel, whether intentionally or by demand, regardless of that, when, when he knew, wow, they're, they're out for the sake of the name. I want to treat them in a way that would be like if God were here treating them in a certain way. I want to do that well. And he welcomed them, even though he didn't even know them, but he knew he was related to them spiritually. That's what Case did. That is really juxtaposed against another man named Diotrephes, who was the exact opposite. In fact, you know where I'm going with this. If Gaius was selfless, give me a word that would describe Diotrephes. Self-ish. I mean, you guys are just so smart. That's exactly right, you know. In fact, look how the Bible describes Diotrephes. 
Verse 9 begins the second example that kind of surrounds the exhortation. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, he does not acknowledge our authority. So here's this man who, who apparently felt he was uh, high enough in power and control in this church that he could actually reject a letter with apostolic authority. I mean, John writes a letter. Now, did the letter get to this church? That's up for grabs. The, word, the phrase, I have written something to the church, could mean that John had something written. He's not sent it yet. It could mean that he had it written and it was sent and Diotrephes said, we're not reading it. We don't know. We do know this. John had something else to say. Diotrephes knew either it was coming or it came and he was going to shut it down. Now, that leads me to say this to you. My opinion is the letter was about Diotrephes. I think the letter was dealing with all the problems he was causing. And so he just tried to deny John's apostolic authority, keep the letter out of the church, because he did not want himself exposed, or he did not want to lose control or lose leverage points. Here's what Diotrephes was doing in his selfish lifestyle. Verse 10 says that John, when he comes, he was going to bring this up because he is talking wicked nonsense against us, which would make sense if he does not want to acknowledge their authority, he would then again lay false charges. That's the most literal translation here. When it says talking wicked nonsense, it it probably means he's just making false charges. So he's got verbal gossip as his foundation. (laughs) He's very divisive. He's lying, speaking things that aren't true. He's obviously wanting to make sure that everything he's gained, his position, it's, it, it, he didn't want it threatened, so he's going to do everything he can to hold on to what's his, very selfish. So he speaks in, in verbally uh, false ways, but the rest of the verse says he's not content with that only. He refuses to welcome the brothers, the exact thing Gaius did, right? Gaius welcomed them. He did not know them, but he said, come in, I want to treat you as if God were himself treating you this way. Diotrephes did the exact opposite. He said, you're not welcome here. And here's what Diotrephes did. He went a step further. And if you liked the folks who were crossing paths with your church and wanted to help them, then he put you out of the church as well. So he didn't let new people into the church who were on mission for the Lord. And if you liked the ones who were on mission, he put you out. Now, that's not right, but let's just admit this reality. That guy had a lot of power. Can we say that? I don't know how he got it. I think it goes to 2 John to some degree. Remember 2 John warns us that there would be those who would try to deceive us and speak falsely and bring in false teaching? This may be one of those who over time crept in and began to formulate his own theology and his own agenda all built around himself. And when that was threatened, when that began to be exposed, he's going to fight that hard. He's going to try to grab for power that that really he didn't have, but he was using something to get rid of those who were traveling for the Lord and then those who even liked them. By the way, that would have been Gaius. Did you know that? So here's, here's shoe leather Bible teaching. Diotrephes was probably trying to get rid of Gaius. Like Gaius. I don't know how that looked in their culture. But he's saying, Gaius, you've you got to quit welcoming these new folks. They're taking our money. What about our place? You've got to start trying to help them, man. We don't have room for them and... I mean, can you hear all these things that he might have said to try to keep them out, get rid of Gaius, and so he could be the predominant player? What a a selfish, sad person. Which is why I think verses 11 and 12, John does a great job of just summing this up. Look what he says. And don't miss this, church. Verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil. Who is the evil that he does not want them to imitate? It's a name. Say it with me. Diotrephes. John calls it out, doesn't he? That type of lifestyle, that stinginess and greediness, it's evil. Don't copy that. The Greek word for imitate is mimetai. It's mimic. He says, don't mimic people like Diotrephes. But mimic good. Who is the good being referenced here? It's a name. Say it. Gaius. So with, with great succinctness, and John does this through all of his letters. He, he writes in what I call like the, 
the uh, Dick and Jane kind of way. He just see spot, see spot run, you know, see Jane kick spot. I don't know. It's just, it's just really simple. Here he says, hey, don't do what's evil. Do what's good. I mean, that's not hard. We can all grasp that mentally. But would we, would we all agree that sometimes churches seem to struggle with the very same thing? We get very selfish. Sometimes Christians get the same way. We get selfish and we begin to protect as opposed to selfless and sharing. Now, I want to admit to you, that is a a wide spectrum that needs a conversation. As you open up your life, as you share your stuff in your soul, there are parameters of that that are biblical. There are ways to go about that that should honor your family. So I'm not, I think there's a spectrum. I'm just saying that we would all say, man, stinginess is not right. Amen? Diotrephes, that, that kills the church. Generosity is right. So as we move away from stinginess and selfishness towards generosity, welcoming, an openness, a sharing, what do we do there? How does that look? That's a conversation. It takes time. It takes strategy, thought, focus, intentionality. Here's what I'm saying to you. That process needs to be happening in your life personally and in the life of the church. Do you remember the fireside chat two, three weeks ago? As I closed it, I told you this, that churches die a slow death, and you don't know it when it's happening. Do you remember that? If you weren't here, go back and hear it. What causes churches to begin to die slowly, invisibly? Inward focus, that's all about who they are, in a word, selfishness. And suddenly, those who are traveling through and we meet them, though they belong to our family, yet they're strangers, we start saying, well, we have no place to put you. I can't put my kids in the basement for a week. No, I don't have any money either. No, you can't come over for dinner. Man, I'm out of groceries. And there's always an excuse for why we can't treat those passing through in a way that God would treat them. You know what? An inward focus is often the, the, the beginning sign, the beginning step to the slow death that you don't know has happened until 20, 30 years later. You're like, man, what happened to our church? I'll tell you what happened. All we worried about was us. Church, can I just, I mean, I know I can, but I just want to speak to you very plainly. The best thing we can do for our spiritual health is to lift up our eyes and look on the fields is to keep an outward focus. Those who are traveling through on mission, those among us who are going out on mission, what has God called us to do? Yes, we keep a strong base. Yes, we want to love each other deeply. Second John is exactly right. So there's none of this. I'm not saying we don't do that. I'm saying that's not all we do. Could somebody that say amen? Exactly. This is what Third John is, is really focused on. Copy those who have a selfless, humble spirit toward those who work for the sake of the gospel. Do not copy those who make it all about themselves. I think verse 12 shows us next an opportunity for them to do exactly that because we know Gaius did it, right? We know Diotrephes did not do it. But now John seems to list a person that perhaps what he's saying here is this. By the way, Demetrius... He's got a good testimony, not just from everyone that knows him, but from the truth and from us. So he's, I think what he's saying almost sublimely is this. Yeah, Demetrius will be coming through soon, so practice this on him. That's what I think is happening here. Why else would he bring Demetrius into this discussion after he said, copy this, don't copy that? I think what John is saying is, hey, here's a guy that's coming to you soon. And by the way, there were three things that were negative about diatrophies. He gives three things that were positive about Demetrius. And John's saying, a guy's coming through. Why don't you go ahead and copy Gaius and do it to Demetrius. Welcome him in a God-honoring way. So that's kind of the gist of the book. It's not hard to understand, but I'll be honest with you. This is a hard one to live out sometimes because we are prone to what? Being self-ish. You can say that. It's okay. Be honest with yourself. We're bent that way, people. 
It takes a work of the Spirit to create in us a selfless lifestyle. So let's kind of wrap this into a single sentence, can we? Now, now I'm going to be honest with you on something today, as I always am. I think verse 8 is the best single sentence summary of the, of the message. I mean, I can't write it better than that. But I did put it in some different words, okay? Just because we typically have a single sentence that kind of wraps up the sermon, gives you a handle to carry home with you. So here's what I think the book, in light of the other books as well, is kind of saying to us. I'll read it for you, then you read it with me. Here's what I think his exhortation, his warning is to those of us who walk in truth. Loving deeply with truth means we are willing to identify and support those who go out for the truth. Now, that's in, in tandem with last week's take-home truth, which Tamor didn't use exactly what I did here in Mondrian. But last week I taught from Second John that if you love deeply with truth, that will help people hold on to truth. You'll be able to avoid false teachers, and you'll be able to cling to orthodox doctrine because you're being loved in, an, in a deep, appropriate fashion. So just as loving deeply with truth helps people hold on to truth, 2 John, 3 John says that loving deeply with truth means that we identify and support those who go out for the truth. Truth is central to all of John's writings, but so is love. And so they all work hand in hand in these two books for sure. So why don't you read this with me, can you? Here's the warning from John in his third letter. Loving deeply with truth means we are willing to identify and support those who go out for the truth. This is the real gist of what he's saying, the one exhortation surrounded by the two examples. Let's take a couple of, let's take three questions. Can we do that? And then uh, we'll make one last application. First question, in today's church, when is it the proper time to expose people whose character is like Diotrephes? Here's what I think is a, is a legitimate biblical process. Because what you're dealing with here is is church discipline on top of someone whose character is consistently selfish and hurtful. I think the process would be you go to them one-on-one. That takes some time. I think personally, sometimes Christians are too quick in the process of church discipline. But here's the process. Let's, let's take it one-on-one first. Then let's take some elders of the church. Let's go to them. So let's take diatrophies. In this case... It seems that there have been folks who tried to work the atrophies. That didn't work. He refuses to listen. Then there seems to be John who's writing a letter. He refuses that authority. So at some point, John's just got to come and say to the whole church, hey, listen, diatrophies continually, blatantly, visibly, publicly rebels against what is clearly right, and we're going to call that out now. Does that make sense? So to answer the question, the proper time is after you've gone through the process of what I would say would be church discipline, which means one-on-one first, and then the church's leaders going to them. And I think that takes some time because you want to be patient and long-suffering. But at some point, if there's blatant, continued, long-term, hurtful sin and rebellion, then you do have to come to the church and expose that. Now, the text does not say this, but I want to tell you what I think John was referring to in this letter that he wrote that we don't know what it says or even how it got there. My opinion is that the authority John was using in the letter is that he was not going to allow diatrophies to kick people out. He was actually going to expel diatrophies. I think the authority he was exercising was uh, excommunicating authority. Say, diatrophies, you can't kick people out. The way you're living means you need to leave. You're an inside divider. Now, I don't know that's my opinion, okay? But I think the letter with that authority was probably aimed in that direction to say, we've got this backwards. You're kicking people out who want to do good, I think the real root is to get rid of you, diatrophies. You're the one who's evil. To answer the question, you do it in a progressive, humble, long-suffering, patient way. And I think the way is through church discipline that's laid out in Matthew 18. Good question. Really good question. Number two, in regards to diatrophies, what would cause him to not welcome the brothers? Was he kicked out of his position for not welcoming newcomers? Well, let's take the second part of that question first. We don't know that he was kicked out. All we know is that there was a face-to-face confrontation coming. Would you say that? Would you? It's textually. That's all we know. We can assume, like in my opinion, that John was going to deal with that and was going to take that action. But the text does not really tell us that he was kicked out. All we know is that John was coming, 
And he said, I don't want to write any more about this. I want to come have a good face-to-face. Uh, and the word, by the way, literally means mouth-to-mouth. Do you know that? Now, face-to-face is a good translation. But if you took the words in the most literal sense, what John has said, you know what? I think I'm done with the email on this one. I'm coming to talk mouth-to-mouth. Don't think weird there, okay? <laughs> He's just saying, I want some eyeball time with diatrophies. I want some face time with the church. Now, last week at Bondurant, I spent some time on this verse because it's also in Second John. You'll know that from reading it. And can I say to you, it's a point of conviction for me. I'm learning this. This is probably a big learning point for me currently as your pastor is the ability and the, the courage to say, you know what, this is not an email. This is not an Instagram. This is not a tweet. This is a stop by and see you. Or this is a phone call to say, hey, can we talk about something? And that's not always bad, by the way. In this case, in diatrophies, that was a negative thing coming up. That John said, I'm not going to write about it. I'm coming to see you. Sometimes it's just good things. But I, I'm learning that my life sometimes is just way too digital. And I suspect some of yours is as well. And you're quicker to send an email because you think it's an easier way to say a tough thing. But the results of that email are far worse in the long run than if you sat down and said, hey, can, can we talk about something? And so I just want to say to you, as your pastor, one of the things I'm learning is to put down the keyboard, turn over the cell phone and say, I think I'll call them. Now, I'm, I'm like you. I'm like, man, that's going to take more time. And I'm swamped. Yeah, who isn't busy these days? But in the long run, relationships are worth it to say, hey, can I come by? Hey, you got a minute for a call? And just voice to voice, mouth to mouth, face to face. That's the way to love people deeply. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I actually like technology. I don't want to confuse technology and theology. Are you with me? There's a place for technology. I I enjoy it. I think we should use it. I'm for it. But you have to ask yourself, why would I employ technology every... You have to ask that question every time. Why am I employing technology to solve this problem? And if it's because of fear, put it down and speak face-to-face. That's a good rule of thumb. Can you hear that okay? I'm glad John wrote that. I don't know if he knew about email in the first century, but it sure speaks to me today. Amen? By the way, he didn't know about email. That was kind of a facetious line. But I, I want to have this same idea that, that we just go really face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, when it's necessary and when it's, when it's right. Um, so the second part of that is that he, he, we don't know what he's kicked out. We don't know. But we do know he was not welcoming. And what would cause this is the first question. I, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. So we're left to conjecture. But let me give you what I think may be part of the scenario. It appears that Diotrephes was uh, concerned that he would lose his power, albeit used wrongly, and albeit not from the right source, let's just be frank, he had power apparently. I think he's afraid he would lose that and thus lose his preeminence, his, uh, his position. He was very proud. He wanted to be the center of attention. And let's just say this, anytime you're dealing with a problem, now hear, the, hear me well on this because this is going to be a broad statement. I want to say it well. But anytime you're trying to deal with a problem, if, you, if your last and final filter is always, well, what about me? There's a problem somewhere. There is. If everything's got to come back to you in the end, there's a problem. Can you hear that okay? I think this is Diotrephes' biggest issue. Somewhere in all of this, he just kept thinking, well, I'm going to lose this. I'm not going to get this. or I won't. It was all about him. And whenever it's all about you, That's not a good place to be. That's all I'm saying. So we don't know the answer to the question, what would cause him, but I do know this. He feared and worried that he would not be the center of attention. And so he did, he lied. He mistreated people. He took authority he didn't have. He caused great division. He gossiped. Because to him, he was the center of that world. Now that brings me to say this before our last question. Listen very carefully. That's an easy route to go. I'm going to stand by this statement. All of us are naturally bent towards being the center of attention. And you'll be tempted in every situation when you've got to solve something. If you'll make yourself the, 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 the hub of it, the center of it, that's an easy route, man, because you can, you can... 
I can do that. I can settle in on what I want, and I can camp out there, and I can be hard to deal with. But it's not the right way to go. The right way to go is to ask, what's the selfless position? And again, there's a spectrum here. So what's the selfless position that honors God, those I'm in a relationship to? What's the selfless thing to do that, that's worthy of the Lord? Does that make sense? And that's hard. So I want you to hear this. Selflessness is a very difficult lifestyle. I want you to embrace this. Selflessness is a very difficult lifestyle. It's not impossible, and it's not rewarding. I'm not saying that. I just want to make sure that we're clear on something. Embracing through John isn't like a walk in the park. It's tough sometimes because you're willing to take a humble position for the sake of others. You're willing to share your stuff, your soul, you're willing to take second place. Is that easy? No. But is it sometimes right? Yes. Especially when it involves those who are traveling through on behalf of the gospel. And they, they need hospitality. The sign that we belong to God, that we love them. When, that, when that's needed, man, let's take second place. Let's do this. Does that make sense? I just want you to kind of be aware of that. I think that's his, his root issue. Last question. What are some practical applications that we can do today? Well, this is, there'll be some opinions here. So we'll call them Todd's tips again. You may have some as well. Share them in your lighthouse this week, would you? Your small group. I'll give you a couple that I think of off the bat as I look at this question. First of all, uh, share your stuff and share your soul. I've learned that sometimes we're quicker to share our soul than we are our stuff. I'm not sure what that says about our soul. But we can talk about ourselves. We can open up to people. And if they're strangers, but they come in and we kind of get to know them over dinner. Yeah, okay. But suddenly, hey, borrow my car, stay overnight, need some money. And we know that they're part of our family, but we don't really know them. And they're on mission for God, and they're traveling through. Like, hey, well, we come very protective, can't we? I just want to encourage you that this book would probably demand to some degree that we share our soul and our stuff. Another application would be this. I, I would say give to and through your church. Now you're going to say, well, Todd, of course you're going to say that. Well, I would say that to you if I'm in the chair there you're sitting in. Because here's why. When we give to and through our church, we actually see verse 8 happen. We, we find it's, it's a unique way to be a fellow worker with and for the truth. We, we have a synergistic effect that happens when your funds and your funds and your funds and your funds and my funds, when all the funds go together, larger things can happen than if you just did something alone with your funds. They can let me give you an example. We currently have 12 global partners. We have three or four in the pipeline right from this church. Of those current 12, I would say a few of them are from our church. But we have a number coming in the pipeline. So in the next three, four years, we will personally have relationships with probably 15, 16, Lord willing, global partners that we know, that we invest in. That's why we came to you two weeks ago and said, hey, we've got to really raise our mobilization funds Let's, uh, over the next two years, work to see this happen. That's a good thing, guys. Twelve-plus global partners that we're partnering with. My guess is none of you could probably say to the Johnsons, uh, the Hensels, and I can name them, you know what, why don't you guys just take care of them? They'll be your missionary. Like, Todd, I don't have that kind of money you'd say to me. Now, some of you might, but by and large, most of you are like, I can't support an entire missionary in so-and-so country. You're right, but guess what? When you give even just a portion of what you earn in a sacrificial way, and I give, and they give, and she gives, and he gives, suddenly we can actually support a number of people personally who are traveling itinerant preachers slash missionaries for the gospel. It's a synergistic effect of everyone giving a little, and it turns into a lot. Let me add to that something. Beyond the 12 global partners that we have, we also support the North American Mission Board, and the International Mission Board. Those are two entities that are underneath what's called the cooperative program. It's a, it's a cooperation of thousands of churches who give what I would say would just be a small amount each year. That's divided up at least among these two groups, the North American Mission Board 
and the International Mission Board. Did you know that those two boards together have over 11,000 missionaries? Now watch this. When you give each week, when I give each week, part of your gifts go to help. This is true, based on verse 8. Over 11,000 missionaries. You are actually a partner, a worker for the truth in 11,000 ways. You say, well, I don't know them. You're right. So that's, that's something we can work on. Well, we have 12 personal partners. We do that. But let's not deny the fact that when we give in that way, in a synergistic, collective fashion, more can be done than if you're just on your own right here saying, you know what, man, I'm just going to do it myself. And whatever you give annually, it, it, might, be, it might go a little, little bit. But when you give in connection with lots of other people, and then our church gives in connection with other churches, do you realize what can happen? 11,000 plus people going for the sake of the name. Like, I'm in with that, okay? That's a good thing, guys. So, that's a practical application. So, give to and through your church. I would say one more is pray about how your family can show this hospitality when you encounter people who are traveling through. It's a very specific application, but I think it's helpful. Uh, I had a man say to me for a service, Todd, I've got an extra room. If you need a place for a man to stay, my place is open. He just bought it. It's a new home he's got. Uh, Julie and I, when our kids were all home, I remember when Mike Holmes was traveling through. We know him, have not met his family much, but he's traveling through. It was a very busy time for us. He called like a week before. He said, Todd, I'm coming through. Can I stay? And my first reaction was like, oh, man, that's not a good weekend. And I just wanted to say, you know, it's not going to work. But Julie and I looked at each other and was like, hey, let's figure this out. So we put some kids in places and figured out schedules and time frames and meals. And he came by, stayed, and it worked out great. So I don't do everything right sometimes. That was one we kind of did well. Just housed them and were hospitable. Here's what I'm saying, guys. Find uh, specific ways your family can live out gospel-centered love to strangers, which means people who are related to you spiritually, but you don't know them physically. That's the definition of stranger. Those are three things I would think of, okay? There's more in your mind. I'm sure the Lord will help your, uh, help your lighthouse in that as well. Think through them. But it's just some ways to kind of go through that. One last phrase before we uh, wrap this up. Look at verse 11 with me, would you? Because I think there's a tucked away nugget here that provides the well for all of this. This is very, very intriguing to me. It's after uh, he encourages them not to imitate evil, but to imitate good. He then says this, look at verse 11. Whoever does good, in other words, I believe that's a reference to verse 8. Whoever obeys verse 8, It's from God. Whoever does evil, that would be acting like Diotrephes, right? Has not seen God. Now, here's the stinging part of the message. If your life is consistently known by stinginess, protectionism, in the sense that don't touch me, it's mine, and that's all... If, if all you know is to grip and clutch and hold and don't get close or that turns into a claw, you know. John says that lifestyle means you, you've not seen God. Translation, you don't belong to God. You don't know God. How, how, can, you, how can one who's experienced the grace of God in Jesus who as a as one far away from God was brought near by the blood of Christ, how could anyone who has known the grace and generosity of God act that way? That's what John's saying. I mean, it really goes in line with 1 John. And yet he's saying, when we are generous and open-handed, when we're sharing, man, that's a sign you know God. Guys, this is stinging because... How you treat traveling, itinerant preachers slash missionaries is an indication of your soul's condition. That's heavy. But that's what he says here. 
So the next time you encounter someone in that category, think twice and show them the grace of God because you've been given the grace of God. And if you find it impossible to ever live that way, the reality is you probably do not understand or know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, wouldn't it be like God on a Sunday like today, teaching through a simple 15-verse book that has very little explicit salvation stuff, right? Wouldn't it be like God to use this book to draw someone to faith? Like right now, what if someone in this room is like, Todd, I thought I was a Christian. I've been going to church. I got wet when I was six. They could dump me in some tank. I've been giving money, I, and I, I hate all that, but I just keep doing it because I figured I got to. If your stinginess was actually the point of conviction and your eyes were to open today because you realize, wow, that means I'm not even born again? Probably so. A consistent, stingy, greedy life is not one that comes from God. Wouldn't it be like God to use this crazy text and those stinging, heavy words to say, wow, and suddenly the Spirit opens your eyes. You say, God has been so gracious to me. What? God, save me. Purge me of, of selfishness by the grace of your Son. I believe you are who you say you are, that Jesus came as God among us, died, was buried, rose again. I believe Jesus is who he said he was. He did what he said he did. Save me through Jesus. I, I would almost find that chuckling. That in a non-salvation message, God would use it to save people. That's the power of the gospel, isn't it? And that's the power of grace. So let me ask you, would how you obey this tell your neighbor, yes, I'm from God, or would it say, hmm, you're not from God? My prayer and hope is that we would continue to live with an outward generous focus to those especially who are traveling through for the sake of the name and that we would do our part to to love them deeply as they go out for the truth.